0: Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists, for artists, where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Mian, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind.
1: Alright, so welcome to the Art Grime Podcast. We're here with uh, George O'Hanlon and Tatiana, what is your last name? Scythorne. Alright, well, we're so happy to have you guys on. Uh, no, I'm not blowing smoke. Your guys' paint is paint that I've bought often and for a long time and, and some of the most top-notch paint out there. I just love it. And in particular, I think your whites are the only whites I buy. They're the, they're the best.
2: George and Tatiana are the team behind natural pigments and Rublev Colors and um, some of the best paint on the planet. So um, some of the best oil paint on the planet, which I've known for a long time. But recently I've tried your watercolor paint and it's wonderful. Uh, um, So um, probably also probably not enough of an introduction, but at least something. Thank you so much for being here. Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm interested as Dina. how, How did you guys get into making paint?
3: Wow. That's a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll try sure. to, I'll, I'll shorten it. Um, I, my background is in art, but I later, uh, had some training in chemistry. I was, uh, running an ad agency in Silicon Valley for, for many years. And I finally got tired of, of that, that type of business. And I, w- I was thinking of going back into painting. And so, um, I, uh, of all things, I started to paint icons in egg tempera. And so I traveled to Russia to, and I I wanted to really understand.
4: My husband doesn't do anything easy. Yeah. So
3: <laughs> he
4: studied something, he studied all the way because he started classes here. It was not enough. And so then he went to Russia. And then after that, we traveled to all over the the.
3: Mediterranean, Mediterranean you know, yeah. any, any Orthodox and Coptic countries. And so I, I studied the art, um, and I studied with people in Russia. And, um, but when I came back, I had these pigments, because a lot of Russian iconographers were using natural minerals in their iconography. And, it, you know, it's fairly traditional. Not all of them do, but, but many did. And the ones that were teaching me did. And so you make your paint. And so uh, being an oil painter, originally, I started to use the pigments in oil paint. And I found something outstanding uh, about that. And <clears throat> the fact is the paint behaved in ways I'd never seen before in my life. And um, I didn't quite understand why at the time, but I, I started to figure it out. And one of the reasons was because of the particle size of of the pigment. So in natural minerals, you get a wide variety of particle sizes. So almost all paint prior to the 20th century had a wide range of particle sizes. And and as a result, the paint behaves completely different than it does today with very, very small, uniform particle sizes due to synthetic and modern uh, pigments. So uh, that uh, just, it just opened up an entire new world for me in terms of not only this, I, I love the science behind it, but I, I you know, of course, I, the art and what it, what it actually could mean for, exp- for expression from artists. And I started sharing some of that and people were equally amazed. And, um, and for some reason, I got it into my head that I, I wanted to make this paint um, much to the resistance from my, my wife at the time, um, I went out and bought, you know, mixers and color mills and <clears throat> started making paint in the garage. And we took our paint to several, um, I, I knew at the time scientists working at different museums and I took it to them and I said, hey, look at this. And, um, and they recognized what it was. They recognized that it, it was paint like the old masters made. Um, and uh, the only problem was is to do it commercially, I had to figure out how to store it in tubes. And um, so what most people today do is they, they make paint and they put a stabilizer in it, Then stabilizer uh, helps, the tube, helps the paint in the tube from separating. So I did the same thing with an, with an initial batch of paint and then I discovered that all of the behavior I loved from the paint disappeared. Um, so that taught me that the, the additives in paint control the behavior of paint. But additives have, are really a 20th century addition to commercial paint. So that you know, even the paint made by, let's say, Winsor Newton in the 19th century didn't have many additives. They did have, once in a while, would add wax or resin to stabilize the paint. But um, they didn't really use much of anything, certainly no modern additives. So um, as a result, I, um, uh, I, I just uh, in one summer in 2007, I, I took my entire family, we went to, to England, and I found archive I
4: told you he doesn't <clears throat> do anything simple.:
3: So I found an archive of an old uh, menu, manufacturer, uh, paint manufacturer that's no longer in business. Um, and I went through the archives and I realized what they were doing. And, um, and I realized that most 19th century paint makers were doing the same thing. And so we incorporated it into our process. And we found that the paint, we could stabilize the paint to a large degree, not entirely. So you do still get some separation during storage in a tube, but not bad. And um, so we, and it took, it took us probably another five years for the majority of the colors that we were working with at the time, how to basically stabilize it, and the procedure is quite simple <clears throat> it 's actually no secret We, um, we uh, uh, put the the pigments in an oven at low temperature the night before we mix it, and we drive off all the adsorbed water on the on the surface of the pigments oh. now, just the benefit of that is that. Oil and water doesn't mix, and the water adsorbed on the surface of the pigment particles uh, help or prevent a lot of the oil from coming in contact with the pigment. When you put an additive in there, it it subtracts that. They don't have that issue whatsoever. So most people don't, most manufacturers don't bake their pigments beforehand. So we do... And we do it overnight, and then we mix it, and then we we uh, we let it sweat. That's, that's an old 19th century term. We let the paint sweat in the mixer overnight. It relaxes. We may have to add more pigment back into it the next day, and then we begin to grind it. And then we age the paint. So we start a process of aging in some cases, uh, and each time we age it for a couple of weeks, we take it back out, we grind it. And then we put it away, age it some more weeks, take it out, grind it, and so we do this numerous times for certain paints. For some paints, we don't have to do it many times. Lead white is a perfect example; it it goes into uh, with oil just perfectly without without any problem whatsoever. But um, but other colors do not, and so we have to. We may end up aging it for a long period of time. But anyway, that's that's the difference that's what we what we found and what led to the development of our colors which are without any additives which is the and mostly not all but most of them have very wide range of particle size. Hmm.
1: Yeah I'm interested in that particle size is it would it almost lay down I'm picturing like a stone wall with various sized stones is that kind of the idea that the particles sit in irregular ways that's why it behaves differently
3: uh, one one way there so one of the ways that it does is when you have variable particle sizes. now this gets really technical, but um, so I'm going to try to simple, simplify it. Think of it like. Um, think of it like a brick wall. Okay. So you've got a brick wall and, um, all of the bricks are of uniform size and shape.
0: Uh-huh.
3: And, um, if you push against the wall, assuming there's no mortar, if you push against the wall, the bricks fall over quite easily. But imagine if there were large bricks, small bricks, bricks of different shapes and sizes, uh, some of the small bricks would entangle with the large bricks, and you wouldn't be, it would be very difficult to push it over. So you would have to apply more force, but eventually you'd be able to push it over. Uh, we call that yield. That is the amount of force required to push that is the yield. Huh. That, um, what's interesting is that when you're brushing paint out, you're putting force on all of this material and you're basically trying to push it over like those bricks. Um, The difference is that when when you have small uniform particles they slide over each other relatively easy. When you have have different particle sizes there's an initial resistance but with a little bit of time or maybe with greater force it, it yields and it falls over. In other words, it starts to flow. And um, that is a very unique property um, in that the old master paints had a very unique flow because of the fact that they had this very variable particle size. Modern uh. paints don't have that anymore. And in fact, they glide much easier because the additives actually act as a lubricant. And making that's it easy—that's why easier.
4: often you hear the buttery paint.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: It's it, that's what it is. So uh, I mean, I, <coughs> some artists obviously prefer the buttery paint, but not all. And so,
3: so <laughs> no, for for me, buttery paint was paint that was very difficult to brush out. Mm-hmm. Um, think of it like think of it like margarine. You know, when you when you when you brush margarine, margarine doesn't flow you have to keep pushing at it to get it to do anything, which is great if you're going to use a knife on the painting. So if you want, if you're doing knife work, you know, buttery paint's perfect. But when you're brushing paint, you want it to flow when you're brushing it and you uh-huh. want it flow to stop when you stop brushing it.
1: Huh, that makes, that, that, that explanation makes so much sense to me about the, the, the brick wall. Yeah, it's great.
4: Yeah, in 20th century, Everybody started to talk about mediums. Nobody ever thought about mediums before because they were not needed. And it's not like to say that artists were grinding and trying to big or small particles just because they were doing this more than pastel. It was organically done uh, this way. But they could control their paint based how like what oil they were using or what pigment but nowadays it's all gone so whatever pigments are given you by manufacture so you just have what it is mm. so that's why uh, mediums came to the 20th century mostly too because of that the manufacturing of the, uh, the colors uh, was different at this point and that's why now we looking for secret medium <laughs> because everybody needs to, to fix the paint from the tube, that's what it is. Right? Mm-hmm.
3: So the buttery huh. paint doesn't flow well, so you add a medium to get it to flow, and, and then you go down this rabbit hole of adding too much medium, and in oil paint, medium is not a good thing. And yeah, that,
1: that actually brings me to a question. I'm someone who does a, quite a bit of glazes, actually your paint is great for glazing um if what do you feel about a lot of medium glazing time after time layer after layer is that dangerous you know in terms of especially maybe you're using a solvent and some of the medium like linseed with half solvent do a glaze layer keep going fat over lean of course but is that dangerous inherently do you think
3: there's a number there's a number of issues with that one is the more you add to your oil paint, um, the more yellow it's going to become.
0: <clears throat>
3: yeah. Because oil is a yellow medium, and um, and there, there's no such thing as a non-yellowing oil. It doesn't exist. There are oils that yellow less than others, but they all yellow. And um, so, you know, a lot of people talk about walnut oil non-yellowing or safflower non-yellowing. That's not true. They are yellow when you look at them they 're yellow, and when they age, they yellow more. So the more oil you add, the more likely that paint film will become yellow later on down the road. Mm-hmm. And, um, the pigments effectively hide the yellowing of oil as long as you don't have too much oil in your paint film and and that's why you know when you know we look at an old master painting. They, uh, they are remarkably in, in very bright c- color condition. Mm. The yellowing that we usually see on their paintings is due to the varnish. Once you strip that off, then you have this, this wonderfully colored painting. And in many cases, the color has retained itself because they didn't use mediums, which is what Tanya was mentioning. They really didn't use mediums quite a bit. And, that came about later on and um, artists started employing mediums in a kind of, a, um, it's really a, a misread of what the old masters were really doing. They thought the medium, they were using mediums, but in reality they didn't, there's very little evidence of mediums in old master works like Rembrandt and you know 17th century and earlier. There's very little mediums in that work at all. How do you oh, feel, really?
2: Yeah, how do you feel that there's there's a company that is claiming to make the, um, the um, I think it's called CCS Artist Materials, but they claim to make mediums that don't yellow and lavender spike oil that is not toxic. And I've heard mixed reviews of this. And you would be the person who would probably like you and Tatiana probably know more about. Paint <laughs> uh, than, than any anyone on the planet. How how do you feel about that that stuff? I'm I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs>
3: yeah. So I like I said there there there's no there's really no such thing as a, as a non-yellowing. It's misleading. Let's it's, put it yeah. This way. It's 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 very misleading. Um, you know, there there was a number of tests done by uh, some manufacturers in Europe. Uh, I would say maybe in the 70s and 80s when they were starting to uh, utilize safflower oil. Safflower oil has only entered into commerce since about the 1960s, first in, in house paints and in alkyds. And so it was a very light colored oil it yellowed much less than anything out there and so the artist mm-hmm. uh, manufacturers started to incorporate it and um, the you know the, the problem and and some of their initial tests, of course, what they did showed that it didn't yellow, but that uh, those tests are largely debunked these days because they don't take in consideration aging factors, and so um, so you know and also they they don't take into consideration certain pigments, uh, and one of the one of the pigments that were used was zinc, and zinc has a propensity of not showing yellowing. Is uh, that oh, right? That's yeah. But the problem with zinc is that it causes paint films to become brittle, oil paint films to become brittle. So, I,
1: I've heard that. It is, would you have a problem if you're just using a little bit of zinc white in the mix or should you avoid it
3: altogether? You, know? you, should, you should avoid it altogether. Really? Wow. Yeah. And, huh. and the reason why we say that, and, and I know... You know, there's there's a number of artists out there today who uh, believe that this whole zinc thing is is um, BS. Okay, um, it isn't. It's uh, we didn't really understand it. Well, let, let me let me digress for a moment. It was well understood since the 19th century that oil paint films became brittle with zinc. However, uh, it it wasn't widely accepted you can you can read early research reports going back to the late 19th century and they discussed that but it wasn't really you know it it really didn't filter down into uh you know into the artist materials manufacturers what they did find is that it it kept whites very brilliant so they started adding zinc into all the whites all the yellows all the blues because it would make those colors look brighter, especially when you squeeze them out of the tube. If I were to take two pigments and added a little bit of zinc white into that color, that color would immediately look a little bit brighter. And I'm not talking about a lot. Of it. I'm talking about you know maybe you know uh, single digit percentage wise in terms of weight of the pigment. And so it was. It's kind of like how. Today we put brighteners in our soaps in our toothpaste in our um, you know in our in our detergents uh, because it those brighteners optically make things look brighter although they actually don't make anything brighter in a in a real sense mm. and that's what was going on so that's so the zinc did that very well because zinc has um, is a, has a, is a bluish white and it absorbs UV rays. So it, it tends to make things look brighter uh, on that score. Mm-hmm. The problem is uh, we didn't realize how bad the embrittlement part was. And it wasn't until um, it was re- actually in 21st the 21st century that suddenly they started noticing paint films cracking in museum pieces well-known artists painting, you know, we're talking about Hopper, we're talking about um, uh, Franz Kline, Jasper Johns, all kinds of artists using zinc, their paintings are starting to crack uh, incredibly. And Mm. so there was this alarm suddenly going off among the conservation world saying, what's going on? What's happening? And they have conclusively uh, linked it to the use of zinc white,
4: matter of three years they had more conferences on zinc white all over the world than ever happened because it started pop up one after another i guess that's wow. uh, the time already where were we talking about <clears throat> when it started zinc uh, become
3: permitted. one of one of the earliest reporters of. <clears throat> excuse me
4: um we have a fire almost we, we've had so we had so husband... much
3: smoke, and I'm I'm getting hoarse. But... <laughs> oh, the fires! Yes, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, so one of the early <clears throat> excuse me, one of the early researchers. His name is Marion Mecklenburg. I happened to be at his office in uh, it was in in May of uh, of 2007, and he handed me this paper and he showed me his this research. The paper was uh, the result. Of a 28-year study that he had he'd been hired to do, he worked for the Smithsonian, what they call the Museum Conservation um, Center, and which is across the the, the river from uh, from DC. And he showed me their work, and basically the conclusion was zinc was causing embrittlement. Well, that was one of the first early, con- very sound studies on on uh, on the the. It wasn't just about zinc, but the study was on many different pigments and how what they what they uh, what they how they affect the aging of paint films, and that was a 28 real 28 year real time research. In other words, they had samples that were at least at the time 28 years, uh, you know, in in storage. Um, wow. Now, of course, now we have another what 13 years of, of effect on that. So um, I published that paper in a uh, on our website, and then in a uh, group called Amien, which is now defunct. Uh, but it was a group started by Mark Gottsagen, and uh, it was a forum where where artists could answer questions and get real answers about you know about materials, and um, and uh, a lot of a lot of the manufacturers at the time uh, you know discounted the the paper that I wrote, which was based on, on Mecklenburg's paper, and um, and in fact, I got some even hate mail from other manufacturers and nice. claiming that I, I, you know, falsified the report, that I made it up, and so forth. But I was like out there sounding the alarm saying, hey, we, we have to stop using zinc and ARC. And, um, and so, um, Golden at the time just bought Williamsburg. I remember, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, they were aware of the paper just like I was. And, in fact, I, I, I talked I talked to Mark Golden about that, and they said, well, we're going to keep zinc for now, but we're studying this for ourselves, which was a, a great idea. And um, so uh, so they in, in initiated basically what was a five- to six-year seven, study, seven-year seven 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 study, seven. year study mm-hmm. and re- in, in about – I think it was about two years ago, they um, they basically dropped all zinc from their line.
4: The conclusion. Wow. Because <clears throat> they, they had all this test done and they…
3: They found that their paints with zinc were becoming brittle within five years. And to answer your question, to see how far, how little zinc would make a difference, they went down to three percent.
4: And Wow. The-
3: and it still paint. caused, and, and it not only it caused every paint, you know, every paint film they tested, including lead white, which was, you know, because lead actually causes paint to become strong and flexible, mm. uh, but in, in the case of zinc, it actually worked against it, and, uh, and that paint film cracked. So, wow. So they're one of the major manufacturers that remove zinc from the line. Um, which
4: I need to make a point. You need to have the guts to change the old formulation in your own entire line of colors.
3: Because, you know... It's it,
4: unbelievable the, what Golden did. Yeah. I still can't believe. And that's, yeah.
3: You because know, that, that means they had, to, they had to eliminate some colors. They had to change the formulation. Um, and so they had to go through a reprocess. And there's other manufacturers that have been slowly dropping zinc from their wine. Um, I, uh, we did an article where, at the time in 2007, we did a table of all the whites, commercial whites, that had zinc in it. And, and we reproduced that, that table again just uh, last year. And I would say 70% of the companies dropped zinc from their lines. Wow.
1: That's crazy.
3: Yeah,
4: well, that's crazy. Huh. Well, I I need to mention it's only on oils. Yes, we need to because it's very time. Always, people asking us, and so they now put that in acrylics and watercolors. Anywhere else,
3: it doesn't have the same effect. Oil paint is the one that's heavily affected.
4: Do
3: you
4: know one? Mm. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Z-
2: zinc is also like, it, it, you know, lead white feels good when you use it. Like, <laughs> like you know, the um, or at least good lead white, which is basically either you or David Davis, which no longer exists. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, Z- Z- zinc never felt like that. It had no tinting strands. Like, it, it, it's, it's hard to use. I, I, basically, no big loss to the painting world. I'm <laughs> uh, surprised how
4: people fight with us about zinc, and uh, imagine when twelve years, thirteen years ago, when he first uh, talked about zinc, he was the crazy guy, and everybody were looking like, oh, "Okay, here's the talking about zinc." Now, ten years later, you know, it's all. Yeah, I was, I was the guy
3: with the sandwich sign on the street corner saying that the world was going to end, and <laughs> and you know. No, nobody believed it. Um, and again, it wasn't my research. It was, it was what conservation scientists were finding, observing the paintings, and you know, and and the point is, it, it you know, you can't say, uh, you can't say, for instance, that zinc will cause every paint film to become brittle, um, because there are examples, especially in the 19th century. Uh, you take a look at the, uh, because that same year, by the way, I was in England and I was talking to Joyce Townsend at the Tate, at Tate Britain. And, um, um, and I asked her specifically because she knows intimately the work of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood who used zinc like you would belief. believe. They would, they would make wet couches of zinc and paint directly into it. And, uh, <laughs> And she said, Well, you know, a lot of their paintings aren't in good shape. Until. Um, But, you know, um, there may be circumstances where zinc will be preserved. We don't understand why. But the majority of the cases, now we see it's not good. And so Mm. it's like, why risk a painting on something we don't know? You know, there may be some magical thing. That goes on that that can preserve it, but who knows what that is?
4: Which, by the what? way, since you know we started to talk about <clears throat> research and uh, restorers, and that's what George is actually now. His link in between artists and research world because research world before him lived what is it um, of automi- like um, autonomically. And same like artists where they didn't have slight idea what's going on because that's why now our classes we are teaching that paint is chemistry. Anyhow you look, it's chemistry. And you need to understand what you put together. But what 20th century brought, you just squeeze from the tube the paint. You don't know anything. You just like the color. But that's why we are doing this and George now works with so many museums all over the world and the highest researchers and so then all that information we try if we can to put in our a line of colors we, we are doing. But if we can so at least he's talking about this. That's that's the I think the one of the major things what if if anything but natural so- pigments does.
3: Yeah, we we, we um, because we we deal with both worlds, of con- you know, a lot of the scientists and the conservation, and and of course with artists, we we like we want to encourage them, <clears throat> excuse me, to talk because um, they we can learn <clears throat> we can learn a lot from each other, Conservationist workers. Uh, there, in fact, in in some um, there is University of Delaware. They're actually teaching. Uh, the conservation scientists who become in, in their career will become conservation scientists. They're actually teaching them to the paint because, you know, a lot of people th- assume just because somebody is, you know, retouching a painting that they, they know how to paint. And that's not, that's not the case at all. Right. most right. Of the time They don't, they're scientists. They're, they're studying, they, they can retouch a color, you know, they can, they can in paint, but that doesn't mean they're a, an artist. And so helping them to understand is is a very important aspect of that. At the same time, it's really important for artists to understand what they're finding about these old paintings because a lot of what we thought we know about paintings comes from old art manuals where they were making guesses. You know, there's a, and there's a lot of people out there that will swear up and down. They'll say, and I, and I know these artists, They'll say, oh, I know what Rembrandt did by looking at the painting. Well, yeah, you can tell some things, but you really can't know what Rembrandt did. Even the conservation scientists will never claim that they know how he executed his paintings, as an example, or anybody from that matter, because the painting has changed considerably, and there's a lot of factors involved, but they do know more about it.
1: You mean not know in terms of what colors he was using or what his layering
3: process was? What What do you mean? All of that. All of it. Oh, interesting. The
4: the colors th- we basically can say colors. By we can, you know,
3: we can. They can. They they can analyze a color and they can know basically what it is, but it doesn't always give the full picture mm. um, because they also find other things in paintings that are kind of mysterious. Like, for instance, they find starch. In, in some of the grounds of of, of um, excuse me of um, uh, Rembrandt's paintings and some other 17th century artists. Well, we don't know why the starch was there. What purpose huh. did it serve? Um, but um, you know, there's we can only guess. But we find it, and that's you know that's an, that's an interesting finding. Um, there, but conversely, there's uh, there's a number of now scientists in the conservation world that believe understanding the structure of the painting is an imperative thing for, for scientists to understand. Um, and in fact, we're working with, um, with one of these scientists. He's in um, he's at the Alte Pinakothek, which is uh, the museum, um, the old gallery in Munich. And they're studying the structure of the painting in a, in a very novel way. They're recreating the paints and understanding how how these paints were brushed on, and we're helping, we're participating in the research of that. It's um, uh, by supplying some um, uh, some of these pigments, and so um, so that's that's another aspect of it. So we, we we like to think that we're you know we're kind of bridging all these worlds together and and learning a lot more, and and in the in the interim also helping artists out by understanding how materials are used and and overcoming some of the problems that artists have. Many of them have art problems that they don't understand how to fix. Um,
1: Right. Well, well, it's so important because I teach art and thinking about your first art class, a bunch of tubes, a bunch of colors. It takes you a year or two to just remember the names of these, all these. And then what's what's light fast what is zinc in that case what'll crack how many you know do you do you have any opinions on how many layers is safe to use in a painting if you're just like layer after layer after layer does that get tricky
2: Oh, God. <laughs> I'm actually afraid of the answer to that. I, I feel like all my paintings are like 20 layers. You please tell me it's okay? <laughs> no, no.
3: Well, something that that I say in... Um, so we do this, we, we've been doing this workshop since 2013 called Painting Best Practices. We're doing this now online for the very first time next week, actually. We're starting. Oh. One of the things I tell artists, I say the most... The safest painting is basically a la prima
1: yeah yeah
3: and and it, it's it 's mainly because it 's the simplest form of painting you 've got one layer or you know basically one layer on a ground that 's on a substrate and um, uh, but you know it's it 's like this it's uh, and we also joke that the the absolute Perfect oil painting would basically be a flat field of lead white on a metal panel, in vacuum, and and, and preserved in a vacuum. But that's you know, but that's not really a painting. (laughs) Maybe um, Ab Reinhardt.
4: (laughs) But the idea is so. See, that's why we have this three days class because we basically teach you the rules. And then, when you know the rules, you know how to break them, correct? Oh. But when you go to <clears> school, and it's so common, and it's not like in States or in Russia or in Europe, Australia is way, way far behind us, So, but education is not there. And it's not the fault of even the teachers, because teachers never were taught how, I mean, you go to school and you were taught how to express yourself, but nobody's teaching you with what to paint because mm. you come to school and teacher is giving you color and mediums, bunch of them. And he or she saying that worked for me, that, that worked for my teacher So don't ask the questions, (coughs) use. And that's why people come to our class after, it doesn't matter if they teach 40 years or they just started paint, the knowledge about the paint materials, painting materials is equal bad.
2: So... (coughs) I, I would actually love to take your class um, if, I, if if my kids ever um, go away for a few days again, which they might. Uh, when, when when are you teaching the online one?
3: <laughs> so we do. It's one. it's um,
4: this one already full completely. Yeah,
3: we filled this one. Um, so it's it's three weeks, starting next week, and it's two. It's it's actually two three hour sessions per week for three weeks. And then we've scheduled another one in January, which is still has open enrollment.
4: Dina, I can tell you this: we have this class. We started as a two days class. <clears throat> More we travel with this uh, with this class. More we understood that artists don't know anything about. And actually, we we were we gave like the major first uh, two days and now it's three days and in fact from uh two years ago we started to have six days class where it's uh, hands-on but now of course you know and what it was we were traveling all over the world with this class and of course people would have a job and they or they don't have a time or some now it's online so now it's, it's so easy. And so, and I don't know why, I mean, I know why we didn't never, we didn't do that because we never had time to do that, but now with Corona, so we, we put everything. And so, um but at least it's recording. If you can't, like it will be on Zoom. If you can't, uh, you know, be on time so you can rewatch afterwards and uh and it's good idea again because when three days class people were leaving our class and they were saying it's like four years of imaginary college because nobody's teaching that but the heads were like this and so much information and some information will just like you know just seep in and disappear and some sink in so but having that this now online will help, you know, students just to stay as long on same set of the, the, you know, the lessons as much as they want. So that's look like will be great idea. We will see the first one next week. So we'll go. Yes. And so, and the, another good thing, of course, now it's uh, we have students from all over the world. So it's international you don 't attach anymore to ho- hotel or to to planes, and so then you can sit in your ho- home and enjoy.
2: I, I agree I think artists need this, and uh, both me and probably Marshall went to you know we, we studied with people who did care. And who did teach okay. us, you know, the um, the c- c- kind of at least some of the right painting practices? But actually, you know, um, George, I've been reading your best painting practices on on Facebook, and the more I read that, the more I realize how much I actually don't know. Um, yeah. And then I've taken up watercolor, which is something I've never known anything about, and I think has a different set of rules. And um, I think I need your class amongst other people. <laughs>
1: great we should do it Dina we should do that January one I'd love to yes I'm interested in this stuff because so much of it is like you were saying Tatiana just sort of you're expressing yourself you're freewheeling with these materials and then you you start to know a little more and you're like I don't know if I'm doing this right at all
4: (laughs) yeah or even worse when you uh, we have so many literally Every day we have calls from, again, from all over the world. People call George and they cry, but it's already too late because something is not working, it's falling apart, and they call, and it's that's why on this class we're basically telling you, yes, expression is great. It must be. Otherwise, why why the hell to be the artist? But if you... If you don't put the pieces together, it's just simple physics and chemistry. Simply, you just figure out how physics work, and, and that's it. And you will be free to paint. Yeah, I mean,
3: what, you know, the, the whole thing goes back to what, you know, your, your question is, well, what is, you know, is, is how many layers, and I mentioned a la prima single layer. So and I and jokingly mentioned the the lead white painting on a, on a board, um, and of course that's not a painting. So basically everything we do is a compromise, uh-huh. anyway. And the the issue is uh, how to you know how to do this the best we can for our creative vision, and uh-huh. and that's what we're all about. And and that's actually. Uh-huh. The premise on this painting best practice group on Facebook that we started—that's um, the idea. And, and a lot of people think that we're we're putting down these very rigid rules that you can't do this, you can't do. No, that's not the point. We're explaining if you do this, this is what happens. And uh, so it's up to you if you want to do that. But now you know what to expect. So if uh. you put it on cardboard this is what's going to happen to your painting in very short while. If you paint on canvas, this is what's going to happen. If you're going to paint on wood, if you do this, if you use this color, if you use zinc as an example, if you use solvents, this is what's going to happen because it's, it's, it's rather clear now what most of these things do. There are still, of course, there's plenty of mysteries going on. And, and the science is helping us to figure these things out. Um, Well, the the worst thing that we hear on this painting best practices is I've been doing this for 40 years and my (laughs) paintings are in great shape. And first of all, if you're, you know, if, if you've been painting 40 years, you're probably in your sixties and um, your eyes have already dimmed to the point. (laughs) You can't see that color for what it was. (laughs) Your (laughs) eyes yellow. That's, you know, so a lot of things change. There's no way you could figure out what has changed. And 40 years is really nothing in the lifespan of a painting. Right, paintings in museums that are 500 years old and only, like let's say some of the Van Eyck paintings, only in this century or last century needed any intervention whatsoever. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. But we have 20th century paintings that are actually in worse condition than a painting that's 500 years old. So that should really tell us something. What, you know, What? where did we go wrong as, you know, as artists in not preserving our paintings? Now, of course, a lot of people will say, well, who cares? Because that's not, that's not the modern way. But I don't believe that's for everybody. And I, do, and I actually don't believe that our paintings should disappear just because, you know, we, we did this planned obsolescence in them. Um, uh, it would be a shame if if we now go into our museums and all the paintings that were done 500 years ago no longer existed. Right. You you mentioned... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead.
4: No, for us, uh, I guess it's eye-opening was when we started go to museums on the back side. You know, uh,
3: that... In the back rooms. Back rooms
4: where we suddenly realized like, wow, we... I mean, when you go to museum, what do you see? You, you obviously you see the best pieces what survived. But when we would go to the back, back, back room, is that correct to yep. say mm-hmm. back room? And everything is falling apart there, and especially 20th century. That's the most what falling apart. And that's uh, the, this class actually created because it started <coughs> one lecture. National Gallery ordered, I think, 2006. Uh, first lecture from George and then like it, it's like Snowball seven lectures later we realize then artists need that information. They just don't know where to take that. Mm. And the worst of course come with internet. I mean the great part came with internet. The worst came. <laughs> and so and anybody can just come and everybody's just like an a, expert. Suddenly I I painted, <laughs> 10 years, I know how it is, use this, <laughs> that will work. And then, you know, that's, that's why uh, people cry in our classes. I mean, and people, wow. if they will listen to uh, this podcast and they know who they are because they are mad, they are upset because, and every time I literally, on second hour when we have that um, uh, first break, I have at least one person from 25 people come to me and say, that is absolutely worth it. I don't know where the hell you were all my life. I'm so sorry that I I didn't see that, didn't have this information. So it's important. But if we would have that class in 2000, it will not work. It's just... Cause of the inter- well, yep. well, so
1: this could be something that would make people cry, like you said. Uh, wh- what about painting with solvents? Like, if you're using a lot of solvent,
3: what's the what are the dangers in that? Well, dangerous the, to your health. That's 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 obviously the the, the biggest issue is is health. Uh, secondarily, um, solvents are also uh, in terms of oil paint. Solvents are basically a leading cause of sinking in Mm -hmm. one of the major causes of sinking in. Um, It also, it also weakens the paint film and solvents leach things from the paint film. Um, This is something also, they understood this, but they didn't understand how, how much solvents actually pull out of paint films. And that's why they're, they're very careful now when they're cleaning paintings. Um, they're using, um, using gelled solvents. That's only been done within the last not even 20 years uh, because the gel solvents don't seep into the painting as much. Uh, it does the action on the surfaces, which is where they really want it. But artists are using solvents. They're just, you know, they're just liberally mixing it into everything um, I don't think solvents were used to the same degree that they were prior. They, there's always been solvents in, in oil painting, but I don't think they used them to the same degree because solvents were quite expensive um, ah. up until about the uh, you know the night, end of the 19th 20th century when they started uh, distilling you know pr- petroleum products. But and, still, um,
4: probably the solvents are the not worst what you can do to your painting.
2: Um, and how about this new kind of well, well, well? It claims not to be new, but the lavender spike oil stuff that claims to be non-toxic, and I mean, it smells nice. <laughs> <clears throat>
0: um,
2: is, it, um, is it actually the same thing? As I mean, you guys both look skeptical. So <laughs> no, no, no. We we no,
3: sell no, it. No, you know, no. I mean, we sell solvents too no. because um, uh, there are there are instances when they are necessary. Okay. They may not be the best thing, but they're, they're absolutely necessary. The, the idea behind spike oil or lavender oil um, is they are still solvents. Um, the components in these solvents are not too dissimilar to components found in turpentine uh, and other types of or, uh, natural, naturally derived, well basically all solvents are naturally derived even petroleum solvents. Petroleum is a natural product.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: and so, um, so these, these organic materials are, are all fairly toxic when they're very pure. And the reason why uh, right now lavender oil or spike oil is considered to be gross or generally recognized as safe is mainly because it's never been used as a solvent. Huh. It's huh. only been, see, that's a distinction. It's a very important distinction that a lot of people aren't thinking about. So how, how has spike oil, lavender oil been used before? Well, it's used as perfume. It's used uh, as, a, as a carrier oil for some other, other you know, uh, like in detergents and things like this. Uh, but when you understand that, they use a minuscule amount. Huh. And when you use minuscule amount of anything... It's generally considered safe, but artists are not using small amounts of this stuff anymore. They're using volumes of it, in ways that were they were never intended to be. And so, uh, if you were to look at the list of constituents in spike or lavender oil, uh, and you were to if you were to pull up an SDS sheet on each one of these separately, you would be totally horrified because each one of these things are, are very toxic.
2: I yeah. am totally horrified because I paint in the same place that I sleep and the same place that my five-year-old who sleeps in the bed with me <laughs> sleeps in. Okay, okay. Um, I, I, I would it's, be... It's, uh, I would you know, just it's,
3: it's not, it's, you know, maybe not the worst of, of solvents, you know, like turpentine would be, you know, is, uh, has higher concentration of, you know, pinings, and as a result is more toxic, but uh, I think what the issue is, what we're trying to alert artists to is to use the term non-toxic is really a fallacy. It it may be legal to use that term because it has not been analyzed under the circumstances under which artists use it. So we really don't know what the effect is going to be. We know what, what the effect is When you use it let's say for instance as an aromatherapy that's not a problem uh that's been studied and uh, i wrote an article fact on that whole issue and say well you know used in very small amounts it's it's safe used in large amounts it it becomes a whole different thing so i guess the question is can artists paint in oils without solvents and the answer is clearly yes absolutely and we've been trying to help artists become solvent free entirely or mostly painting. Mm.
4: But again, we're saying that it's probably not the worst what you can do to the painting. But, <laughs> but only to your health. Only
0: to yourself. <laughs>
1: I wanted to ask you about a certain paint of yours that's very coveted. Uh, I have a lot of friends who love your stack white. What is stack white? I know it's a lead-based white, but what is it?
3: That's the original flake white.
1: Oh, that's the one with the corrosive material.
3: Ah. So we humans have been making flake white or lead white in, in terms of the Western world, as early as probably the fourth century BC, the Greeks apparently developed it. And the process by which they did hadn't changed in basically for the next couple thousand years. So it only changed in the 20th century. So how we do it today is totally different how it was done prior. And the way that it was done prior it was called the stack process. Um, or the old Dutch method, and okay. um, and so there. I on the website under the technical articles, I actually describe the process in in historically and in incredible detail. I in fact I show the whole process.
1: Oh really? Hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the reason why it's very interesting is because what it does to lead, it gives that variable particle size to lead, hmm. and when and it's very interesting because you can take modern lead like you know our our lead white number one is modern lead and if you were to compare like put two piles of it in fact there's a little video kind of demonstrating what that what that looks like the difference between modern lead white and the stack process flake white and if you were to brush them out you would see that their behavior is totally different and Uh. it's directly attributed to the pigment particle size and the pigment structure. Even though chemically they're identical, but the particle structure is entirely different.
4: Which, by the way, <clears> if <throat> we are talking about our company and the names, so that's why we, again, we don't give the fancy schmancy names, but we usually give the name of, like, or historical <clears throat> or by the mineral. If it's hematite, if it's Verona green, it's we are digging that color in Verona. If it's stack lead, it's the flake white because now it's abused that name, a flake white. That's why we we decided do
3: not use that. But well, we use it, but we we yeah. we yeah put in we put stack stack stuck process lead, yeah. in front of it just mm. to make sure people understand it is the original process and. Um, and it's a hand process. We we have a corrosion shed at our factory. It's out. It's out in in front of our factory, and uh, we have clay pots. We put lead in rolls. We roll. We lead in strips. We roll it up, drop it inside the pot, and on the bottom of the pot is vinegar. Mm. And the lead doesn't touch the vinegar, and then we put the pots, and we bury the pots in horse dung. <laughs> wow. And um, For three months. and then we stack them. And that's where the, that's where you get the stack process. So you have rows and rows of pots, you put boards over that, you put another rows and rows and you build stacks up inside, you close the doors and 3 months later, you have this white beautiful lead corrosive product. It just falls it just you know it's like crust it just falls right off, sheds Wait. itself and we wash that and the washing process is done by hand and and uh, it's very laborious and that's why you know it it's um uh, we usually produce it once a year uh this year we were delayed because of covid and um uh we're trying to get back into it uh because we had to we had to shift all of our employees working in stagger shifts keep them separate so it, it it um it made certain production processes very difficult for us. Wow, so we're going to get back into the swing, and um, that is the thing: is that some of these pigments, you know, they they they're antiquated. They're commercially they're they're not viable anymore, uh, you know, in in in, in, in big industry. Um, but from an artistic standpoint, they're absolutely wonderful pigments.
1: Yeah. No, you're, I, I use your stack white and it is so nice. It's got that real stringy quality to it. It's really beautiful. Uh, you were talking about the, this reminded me of a rumor I'd heard and I want to know if you, if you know, if it's true or not um, with the horse dung process and stuff is Indian yellow. Was that made from urine originally? Cow's urine. Cow's urine. That's so crazy. <clears throat>
3: so we don't we don't actually have much documentary sources on that um, but the analysis of what is left and there's there's a few examples of museums across the world definitely point to urine um, and uh, and why it was banned it was because it was produced in India and they uh, they would feed cows, le- uh, excuse me, mango leaves to cows, and um, and the they would the cows would produce this very bright yellow urine. Unfortunately, because they were on a diet of mango leaves, the cows would become quite sick over huh. a period of time. And um, so um, it was about early twentieth century. Uh, most of Europe banned the color. So they everything what it. you
4: have right now it is <clears> not the color as many actually Naples yellow you take uh, what else there like uh, vermilion people make sap green it's nothing
3: those are see. those are just names that are used on you know for colors so not for, anymore they're, yeah. they're, they're, they denote colors they don't denote the actual pigment and in our company. We don't subscribe to that idea. We subscribe to the idea of actually calling the pigment as close as we can to what it actually is. Like what time wow. it, if it is. a If it's a, the hematite mineral, that's what we call it. If so how it, about,
2: uh, about mummy uh, brown? Huh? Yes. Yes.
3: Yeah, but the one caveat okay, we do have a mummy brown.
2: I, I think you sent it to me. I, I, yeah. I didn't
3: get it. Yeah. Yeah. The only cap, The only thing is, okay, in this case... Dina,
4: this one actually we took from Russian because Russians have a mineral mumia. And uh, so we just translated it exactly the same way.
1: Uh,
2: okay, okay. So yes. this, is, this, is, this is not actually ground up mummies. not, you not actually anymore?
3: mummies. Um, I looked for some mummies, but it's illegal <laughs> to trade in mummies.
2: Wasn't that the original mummy brown actually? What, yes. Was, Thanks. I mean, I wonder who who came up with that? Who, I
1: mean, who that? <laughs> that brown, that brown too,
2: too much
4: mummies, too many <laughs> mummies in Egypt. So they were grinding
1: they're, they're, and making money yeah,
3: from that. <laughs> there is a literary source that said that they had, uh, the, the Europeans were, were taking train loads of mummies. And of course, that's why you see mummies scattered all across the world in museums, because they were being, you know, they were being traded and sold. And the Egyptians mummified just about everything. I mean, they mummified pets, you know. You know I, mean,
2: I understand that being a curiosity, but who was the first guy that who's like, it's this very specific shade of brown, like it's totally yeah. worth grinding up.
3: We don't know, but, uh, but it started sometime in the, you know, 18th, early 18th century.
4: But what we did uh, actually 20 years ago, that's the first time we brought 13 Russian pigments, and one of them was uh, Mumia, and another one was Getit, which, of course, in English is Getite. Getite. So, but it was original, like, colors, what we started, and that's why it was kind of, we kept the names, and uh, I still pronounce them as the Russian way. George started pronounce them Russian way. And when people call, they have no idea how it's pronounced, because they did one way, we pronounce another But, yes.
2: So speaking, speaking of Russia, how did you... Did, did, I, I'm assuming you guys met there. Were you always into pigment composition, or did this happen through Georgia?
4: I, I studied everything here. If you will ask me to say anything in Russian, anything about about our company, I would have a tough time because everything I learned here, and I started actually I started with uh, icons, because again, I, I went to church there in Russia, but I never thought what icons are, and because you go to, you know you go to church, you just pray, you don't think about how it was painted, who is depicted. And so that's what we, uh, we started first. We were bringing uh, pigments from Russia for iconographers and that's how slowly george started making me. yeah,
2: oh, I meant how, how did you guys meet? Uh, did did you meet there? Did you
3: That <laughs> we, we met in St. Petersburg and um, I I I traveled there to meet with uh, several museums and universities because uh, I was doing a study of um, of old painting techniques. So I wanted to understand um, in in Russia they actually have studied Byzantine work much more closely than, um, than the Western world. Western world kind of ignores the entire Byzantine Empire. There's, there's only a few really good sources, the Dumbarton Oaks, um, really good sources of studies of, uh, of the Byzantine Empire, and I was very interested to know everything about the so- art, the, the history, so, about
4: our, uh, I will tell you one day what eye to why, but for <laughs> hours, we will say just it was quite accident. It was accident, and I never thought that I, you know, I didn't speak English when I met George. He didn't speak Russian. So, two years we were talking like this. We were married basically, like in half year after when we a little bit more than in half year we we met each other. But we didn't speak
3: a, a language, both languages. So two years I was um, on so the dictionary. So Ta- Tanya went to school in, in St. Petersburg. And uh, so she would often visit St. Petersburg. She has, she has friends there and, and some relatives. And so it, just, it, just, it happened just happened that I was making a trip to St. Petersburg, Moscow, Yaroslav, a couple of other places in Russia at the time. And, uh, and so we met and, uh, uh, she, she didn't know anything about icons except like she just explained. He's was, always translating church. me
4: 20 years so later. I, I,
3: I had to explain to her what, what orthodoxy was and what icons were. <laughs> and, um, um, and so that was, that's where, that's where, you know, in and, and fact, the funny story is how I became interested in icons because I really had no interest in medieval art, and especially Byzantine art. So, um, but I read a paper by uh, by a professor at Tallinn University, he's, he's a professor of semiotics, and his <coughs> name is uh, uh, Boris Uspensky, and um, he wrote a paper called The Semiotics of Russian Icons. And I was at the time um, teaching courses to designers uh on semiotics and cognitive psychology I, I was i was applying cognitive psychology and semiotics to graphic design and especially to the internet and uh software splash screens and all interfaces and things like that so that was part of my agency and so i i was i was studying this and um and And I just happened needed to, run, to go to Russia. I just happened to run across that paper after one paper <laughs> yeah, one paper and I said I said, this changes my entire perspective of medieval art and wow. um, so i start i studied everything I could here, I found it was very limited, and so in fact, I probably own every English language book ever on iconography Wow and, um so anyway, so that's. Yeah. So, right. so, did the is the name Rublev from Andrei Rublev then? Yes. Exactly.
4: Yes. And I can tell you, this, Russians can't take that name uh, by law because it's it, it was real person, and so by law you can't take. And so if you if you in Russia and you want to call your company or line of uh, uh, products, uh, you can't. So that's why um, they. It's like Smirnov, you know you can't take the Smirnov, you put FF or you know on the end, so same same as Rublyov. Uh imagine how Russians were upset with me when they found <laughs> that Americans can take that name completely how that's how it's spell and we. <clears throat> that way. So,
3: we did it in honor of, of Rublev because but again it was logical artists, right?
4: again it's not Rubla. like we want to take russian name it was logical because at that point we had the iconophile and we were teaching artists how to paint paint icons that was completely logical but right. when, uh, six years later when we started making colors we thought, okay, wh- what do we do? Do we comf- you know, confuse people, who we are, what we're doing, and so it's based on the same pigments would be the colors. That's why we, we choose to have the same name. That's what. Yeah.
2: Um, the, 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 did you guys watch the movie,
4: Andrei Roplev? The- In fact, all That's... our employees are absolutely... They must yes. see the movie. It's uh, one of the George's uh, favorite Tarkovsky movies, so of course. Mark
2: Marshall, did you see the movie?
1: Yes, in fact, I saw it uh, on the big screen in in here, Manhattan, a few like a year ago. They played it at Lincoln Center. That was great. So,
3: yeah, I think they re they did they did a re release of. Um, of of the film. Of course, uh,
4: many of our mm-hmm. friends think that it's the most boring, but for George, it's the most exciting movie because... It's, it's amazing. Know. It's amazing,
3: <laughs>
1: it's <an> amazing movie. <laughs> yeah,
4: it was, if you survive this three hours of movie, so then you're <laughs> in our team. If not, so... <laughs> then,
1: then you get the job.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you, hey, you had mentioned, Tatiana, a couple of colors that I you're saying are no longer using that process yes like um vermilion is was that that was used with like um mercury right and Mm -hmm. do you is that process still used for a vermilion yes it is
2: yes (laughs) only only by george and tatiana though i think every (laughs) other company is pretty much
4: Oh, you know what? This is pain on my soul, I will tell you right now. So because we were buying that uh, pigment from China, it's only one place in the world left. It's one small uh, company, family company, they're making that, uh, uh, that pigment. We were buying, and every time you buy, it's every time more expensive. And uh, but with all that corona, we can't even buy any more of
3: that pigment. So oh, really? we we were the company has stopped producing that pigment um, because of the um, pollution laws in China have been tightening up considerably. Mm. And mm. so they don't have a lot of uh, a lot of controls in place for industry so that industry can produce a pigment without polluting, you know, everything around them. And so, um, it was our most
4: expensive color yeah. and we always were out of stock and we sold last tube on September 5th.
1: Oh my gosh.
4: Well, <laughs> I wish However, I would have known. <laughs> but of course However, my
3: husband decided
4: to buy a cone and make.
3: So we're, we're, we're actually looking into, I mean, I, I know how to make the color. There's, there's a number of processes. We don't have much to do. But and so we're we're investigating making the color ourselves. We also oh, exactly. found um, we found a source. So vermilion is a synthetic red mercuric sulfide, uh, and actually, throughout history, was used. It was the brightest red on every palette. It has been around, by the way, since the Greek period. Oh, really. Oh yeah, it's been around quite a long time and it was always manufactured or most of the time there is a natural mineral of red mercuric sulfide called cinnabar. And we found uh, and we found recently just earlier this year a very good source, very reliable source of it. So wow. we have
4: now our first batch it's already took for us uh, 3 months to make it and we will release for new year. I mean for Christmas. I'm talking like Russian for New Year, so for Christmas. <clears throat> so uh, that would be a yeah, special edition. And on top of that, we will have another couple colors should I say? So? Yeah. I mean, okay. we will have Azurite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, by the way, it
2: takes us a really long time to edit these things. Okay. So it's probably going okay. to come out right,
4: right before Christmas. So it's actually timing. So we will have Azurite, we will have Malachite, and we will have Orpiment. So oh. nobody, nobody in the world doing these colors. We are only one company uh, make that.
2: Is, is, is Malik, oh, um, okay, that sounds glorious. Is Malik going to be, you know, like like what I say, is it what I think it is?
3: It is a green copper carbonate mineral and its cousin is azurite, azurite, which is a blue copper carbonate mineral. That is a historical pigment. I mean, it's, those those pigments have been used since Egyptian dynasties. In history, wow. uh, azurite was cheaper
4: version of uh lazurite. But now, of course, all uh, all change. Azurite yeah. now it's... is more expensive than even than lazurite. But uh, we found great source. We found, like I said, so in uh, and, the uh, in and realgar.
3: Real gar. Real, so, yes. real gar and orpiment are both arsenic sulfide pigments. They've all... So, 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 so,
1: so sort of like emerald green, is that what the...
3: Uh, well, the... Emerald, green, emerald green is actually an arsenic acetate yes. pigment, which okay. is way more toxic.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, oh. is that poisonous as it
3: sounds? Yes. yes. But arsenic sulfide isn't quite as poisonous, even though it contains. Uh, it's a natural mineral, um, and uh, was uh, was used. The Italians used it. Uh, Titian was renowned for using orpiment. It was. It's a bright yellow. Uh, um, it's it's a very. But don't color. take me wrong.
4: So it's it will be quite expensive, and it will be special packaging. And uh, there's no way somebody can just by accident buy that color. <clears throat> and um, and again, it, nowadays it makes sense for us because before we would not even attempt. It's quite expensive. And, uh, you know, the production, like I said, it's already take uh, for us three months. So then it will be another couple of months to do Um but it's and very all, important all. Uh, colors because they are historical and uh, like, like orpiment is one of the, probably the most beautiful yellow colors. We were doing that by hand. We mm. made several of uh, batches actually and we were selling in jars, metal uh, uh, glass jars. But um, now we, um, yeah, we, we will, it's what is it? And cinnabar. And cinnabar. Yeah. So now we will have cinnabar. Since we lost Vermilion, so then at least we will have a
3: cinnabar. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a range of very, very important specific, historical yeah. colors. Some of them are toxic, of course. Um, we don't encourage artists to, you know, go out and buy, use it everywhere. But, but there are some artists that want to, you know, want to try them and experiment with them and, and use them. And, and uh, so we want to make that available to them.
1: And these are these are probably going to be out around Christmas time.
3: Yes, yes. and the, should we mention my list? Okay. All
2: right, Marshall. I actually want this for myself, but because I have the the tiny munchkins, uh, this, you know, like we can save up for your Christmas presents. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm would, making my list right now.
4: That's why I'm saying so. It will be special packaging, so there's no way uh, children would. Make it to that uh, packaging, so that that's why we. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, we we try to now just thinking last things, and so it will be quite unusual packaging, and
2: uh, will it be like a childproof? Could could it keep a toddler out of the? <laughs> No,
3: no, we will no. Try to make a there's, special
2: there's,
4: box for that.
3: There's really nothing childproof. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: these days from our children, they're smarter than us. What,
3: what often happens because we have some childproof packaging? What happens is that the the adults have more problems opening than the children do. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's yeah, we. Supposedly so we just where recommend if you have anything and you have children, just keep it under a lock and key, and that's it.
2: Um, I actually feel like each child basically throws me out of oil painting for like two years. <laughs> Um, like like I, I just started oil painting again right before lockdown and after that I was basically stuck at home with them for you know while, 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 while working for something like six months uh, um, and and no painting got done at all uh, so yeah I, um, and, and right now I'm thinking if I start oil painting again then things will lock down again and I will just have a bunch of unfinished, <laughs> unfinished work uh, so thank you for the watercolors and um, I, I know um, so Tatiana sent me these really beautiful watercolors that i guess you made yourself right
4: yes it's um oils george make uh makes and so and uh, i do watercolors
3: and i mean i don't <laughs> literally make them anymore
4: not anymore, anymore. but, not <laughs> anymore, but <laughs> i still make watercolors <laughs> um,
2: so i i have to say i they are the most gorgeous watercolors i've ever tried like i like i I am so, like, and and I'm not like I wasn't trained as a watercolor artist I've just been discovering all of this recently, and they' like nothing else <laughs> so Beautiful. Yeah.
4: i I know it's um we kind of were hiding watercolors for a long time because it it was we we needed to figure out, although you think then it's much easier to make watercolors it's opposite the uh, most, uh, there's the, some, there's some, yeah, you know, some uh, aspects on some watercolors, aspects And more, again, see, we don't put, we don't put any additives. Same, uh, same, like with oils, and when we don't need because of the particle size. And you see the the difference in particle size and uh, the, the the main color. the main
3: difference we try to do with the, with the watercolors is we try to make them very much like they made them at the turn of the 19th, 19th century. century. So uh how they made watercolor back then especially um in in England um they those colors actually were more like they were less transparent they were far more opaque they they actually behaved more like what gouache. most people call gouache today mm. and,
4: um,
3: but in gouache you add other pigments Well red see see red. the the whole thing about gouache is that's, that's really more of a commercial thing that came about because no one painted like that. They didn't separate the two. They would, you know, in, in, uh, if you look at late 19th century, uh, or, uh, or excuse me, late 18th century, early 19th century watercolors, they actually painted them more like what they call body color. Um, they had more opacity. They used white they weren't afraid to use white. In fact, that was a very important part of what they were doing, and um, and so we made the paints like that. So that's why they they appear to be very different from most paints today, um, and and they're much thicker generally. Um, the tube okay. colors, it is um, because um, they 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 have it's just the way they made paints back then. Now, uh, if you guy if you get a, a tube watercolor paint there's a thickener in the two watercolor paint. There's very very little, I mean, much less pigment load.
4: Um, because, again, <clears throat> pigments are so small and they are more opaque naturally because of the, the particles uh, pa- particle size. Also. They they actually it, have
3: higher tinting strength. Yes. And so they have to reduce the pigment load in order to make the watercolor controllable.
4: And in this order, you, you need to put the thickener. For us, Different particle size. And so so are,
3: that's suggest. the one thing. I mean, we're not saying anything bad about modern pigments. No. They're great. Modern pigments are great because they actually have greater tinting strength than uh, the pigments with larger particle sizes. But you don't really need a lot of tint strength in many cases. And in, and, in, and that's why they would put, you know, in, in commercial colors, they put fillers to control the tint strength, because often the tint strength is far too great to be controllable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, you take uh, you take phthalo blue or phthalo green or quinacronone uh, magenta, and if you were to put that pigment, load that into your paint, it, it would be uncontrollable. You You would put a drop and everything would turn blue, green, red, or whatever. So, mm-hmm. they put fillers in that to control that. So there's no there's no issue with fillers it's uh fillers have got kind of a bad rap because of all this competition between student grade paints and what they call professional paints but even professional paint paints contain fillers just hmm. as much
2: um so but so, so by the way other than your, yourselves uh what paint companies do you guys like and which one they are because i feel like most of the people who listen to this podcast are probably artists, right? And I, I actually feel like all of the people listening to this episode specifically are artists. Um, and natural pigments is amazing. Um, but I feel like I've, I've I've definitely tried paint that hasn't been nearly as good as yours. The, and I I, I don't want to name names, but which which car, which other companies do you like? The, like, like, are there any that are trying to do what you're doing, which is kind of like, 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 like are there any that care as much as you do?
3: I, I, I think most, most of the companies care what they're doing. I, I can't say, because, you know, this is a small industry. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we, we actually know almost everybody in the industry. Uh, whether it's okay. Okay. <laughs> so you and, don't have to say
2: anything bad about anyone. Uh, but no, for- we, <laughs> no, it's no, not I, that I mean, so much.
3: I mean, I first can, of all, you yes. know, I we believe that most of these people are sincere and they're doing the best they can. The difference is that for
4: whom they do,
3: who they do it for. You see, because you know, if you're, for instance, you're Windsor Newton, you're reaching the entire world, and you're reaching the entire world with a brand that is well-established and, you know, has a certain price point. And that's important, um, and, but that's not for everybody. You know, it's like, you know, it's like saying, you know, uh, a Volkswagen is a no good car as compared to, let's say, a Mercedes or a BMW, they're all very different. They all, you know, or a Toyota, they're all reaching different markets some things they produce well, some things they, they may not produce as well. And, um, you know, they can't excel. It would be wrong to think that they would excel in every area. So there in are... In our
4: case, mm-hmm. we don't want to be for everybody. I, from the beginning, we decided we should not be for everybody. And there is, like, <clears throat> we, we meet great artists all over the world, and some of them, they absolutely love, they, they know what we do in but they can't use because of the technique what they use, for example. But in most cases, what we hear when we go out and so people say like, oh, Rublev, it's uh, quite expensive colors. And like when you compare what, and with whom you work, and of course when we talk about our, we, we in industry, we are the probably most crazy people. We choose 50 mil tubes and um, this is the biggest one. So the smallest one it's as as mil. our
3: as our small size. Yeah.
4: yeah. So. so the smallest uh, the all other companies using thirty seven milliliters, and so or forty or forty two. 40, yeah. So when you compare with volume, so obviously, so our colors are actually not that much more expensive than others. But just because you see the price, but you don't know that the the tube is a little bit more on. Volume.
3: So, you know, to answer your question, Billy's work is
4: great company.
3: Well, Golden is a great company. They and we we they know, do so much research. We you know, we know them. They they're very concerned about the professional artist. Yes. Um, so they are, you know, and and you can tell by you know, you can really tell a lot by, you know, not just the product, but what is the what is the company doing? Like for instance, our do they produce technical information to help artists? Golden produces a lot of technical information, a lot more than most of the large company. And and Golden comparatively, I'm, they have I think, 500 employees. By the way, in the world of business, that's a small company. But in in the world of artist the artist company artist um, materials manufacturer, that's that's a fairly good sized company. It's not as big as Windsor Newton, which by the way is now part of a large conglomerate called Colart and you know uh, we, you know we met some of the some of the older people at Windsor Newton back in the 2000 just before well, just about the same time Colart purchased them wonderful people wonderful scientists unfortunately they're all gone they were retired and um, they
4: were they were pushed
3: well Who knows? But, (laughs) but the point is, is that, you know, um, uh, the company changed.
4: company changed.
3: It changed because they now are part of a, of, of a large holding company uh, which is actually under the company called Becker's, which is the second largest coatings company in Europe, uh, which produces by the way, industrial coatings.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) And
3: you know, nothing to do with uh, artist paints, but, you know, that was, it's a family company, by the way, and, and they, they, you know, they, they own that, and they own a, a paper, they own paper brands and other things like that. But the point is, is that they're appealing to a different market, and to say that they don't make a good product would be wrong. That product is good for that marketplace. But there are, there are very strictly professionals out there who Dina, really need something more.
4: Here's, you know, what, what we teach in class. So you work, so when you go to doctor, yes, so if something is not pain in you, so then you come to doctor and you say like, okay, here's my hand, it's pain, and doctor is working with you. So if you love some some company, if you paint with whatever name, I, I don't know, and if something goes wrong, you go to that company and, and ask them to help you. And if they do, that is great company for you. But if company is answering, this is secret, I will not tell you what is inside. Like, for example, you paint all your life, everything is great, and suddenly in museum, your work suddenly started slide. You go to company and you ask, what went wrong? And if companies say like, I have no idea, so it's your problem, then hell is that company? But if company works with you and they try to figure out <clears throat> what went wrong and what we believe, we strongly believe with open relationship in between our customers and us, because we are liable to you, same way as you liable to your customers when you sell and you know that, your painting will not fall apart in 10 years after, uh, after it was purchased. So for us, when you call to, to us and so you say, like, "What is in this tube?" For us, it's important to tell you what's ingredients inside. You don't need to know the formula. You don't ask the doctor what's the medicine. You just try. I mean, you believe to that doctor, hopefully then it will cure you. So same same here with us. So if company is open and try to work with you, that's great company for
3: you. So really what we're trying to say is that each artist should have a relationship with their main supplier of of whatever they're using. It's, it's not unlike, for instance, um, you know, we have relationships with our suppliers. We know what they're doing. We try to understand each one of them is doing something different. They provide a different product or a different service. And, um, and we work closely with them because we have to trust them. They're going to provide us. And, and it doesn't mean that we don't check things. We do check things, of course. But, um, and we encourage artists to check things, check paint, you know, what's what's going on understand what paint is it's um it's kind of a shame that artists you know have really um fallen off in terms of understanding the materials they use um and they they rely too heavily on marketing hype about materials without the you know like non-yellowing and and really not understanding what's going on and it's funny because visual artists or painters are the only art where they know nothing or comparatively nothing about the materials they use if you were to go to you know if you were to go to a, a world class chef they know everything about the ingredients they <clears throat> make all of the ingredients they they don't go to a store and buy you know a can of stock sauce or this or that they prepare everything they they are taught how to work with all of the materials from the very beginning, and that intimate knowledge helps them become, you know, I think a better chef. Same uh, as sculptors. Same
4: and as musicians. Even, yeah, but
3: sculptors know their materials like you can't believe they they have to they they rely because because that sculpture is going to have to stand. It's going to you know it's if it's outside it's got a it's got to weather well. It's so forth. So they really have to know their, their stuff. And, um, and we believe that artists should know the materials. We, we, we believe in a open relation, like Tanya was mentioning, a very transparent relationship and even such a relationship where, um, I mean, we have artists call us and say, can you make this particular paint? And we do. Um, And we work with, you know, we've worked with artists like um, uh, Cicely Brown and, 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 uh, John Curran, we've made. I've, I've made paint for them, and especially uh, ah. they'll buy a batch, and um, we've got. I mean, most of the products we've made have come from ideas from artists. They they come to us and say, "No, they don't come. Mm. They cry on doors." <laughs> so they, you know, they say, "You know, can you do this? What you know, what what can do this?" And we put together something, and and uh, and then we decide, "Hey, this is." it's it's worthwhile producing for other artists as well and or or sometimes not and so sometimes we you know it it has a short life or you know whatever the case may be you know we we um we were last year we were in john curran's studio and we showed him a little jar of azurite
4: that's what azurite comes
3: And it was it wasn't a it wasn't a particularly beautiful blue azure. We, that's
4: why we were it, because we we. Did.
3: And uh, but we thought it was interesting. So we see things that yeah. look interesting. And you go, oh, well, you know, what would this what would this look like? He took that, mixed a little bit of oil, and started painting with it right before our eyes, and just fell in love with that color. Huh. It Was the color he happened to be looking?
0: So he was he, looking was, he was looking years at these years. these
3: kind of steel grayish blue paints on a couple of Italian masters and he said he wanted to utilize something like that we just happened to show up and there it was I mean I, I kind of knew a little beforehand that he was looking for that and I said <laughs> okay we're going to bring a sample of that and and um, and that's 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 what we see as our role it's it's actually the idea of the old color men of the 19th century it's what winsor newton used to be there was artists that had personal personal notes, you know, to Windsor Newton, Windsor, you know, one of them was a chemist and I forgot which one is which one of them was a chemist and one was a, was a artist. And so, um, they had this intimate relationship with artists of the time. And, and we, we, you know, we will never be, you know, a big company like that. And we don't really want to, we want to have that kind of intimate relationship and uh, with artists. Okay. So wow guys <laughs> is it, is it- there, there's, there's a few other companies that are trying to do the same thing and you know and that if you're a professional artist you want to work with those companies
2: so by the way what's next so, so I feel like I could talk about this and probably Marshall too uh, we could do this all night yeah. Uh because I feel like I've got so many technical questions, <laughs> so the, like, like we're just getting started. Our editor told us that if we go um, for over two hours, he'll basically fire us or drop us or whatever.
3: So let's <laughs> another one. Another so we, day. We can always do second part.
2: Part two. <laughs> George and Tatiana.
1: Okay. Uh, I've uh, got but, but, probably 10 other colors here I wanted to talk about, so... <laughs> We're just going
2: to have to stop recording. um, But before we do that, I wanted to ask you: other than the the magical Christmas colors, uh, what's next for natural pigments? You're teaching workshops. You're working with museums. You're doing so much important work. And in a way, like I mean, every like artist who's working on you kind of relies on you, right? (laughs) But uh, what's 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 next? What's what's the natural pigments dream?
4: Oh God! Now he's talking already about making his own pigments. Okay, but, uh, but
3: I think the most important thing um, and and I, I would like to mention this. this is this is a very important thing so you know that uh, there's, there's light fastness ratings on tubes of paint. yes mm-hmm. so where did those light fastness ratings you come have from: two minutes? Okay, I'll say this really qu- uh, quickly. Do- <laughs> this, is a, this is a this is almost this is a forty-year thing, but I'll, I'll try to condense it. So basically, in Europe, they each company developed their own light fast test, um, and the the exposure is done outdoors or sometimes done in a, in a laboratory under artificial lights. The problem is is that because everybody does their own light fast test you have different results so Mm. because if you're exposing paint let's say in northern europe to the sunlight there in northern europe and someone in the united states is exposing paint to sunlight in arizona or florida you're going to get entirely different results Uh. so um, in the in the 1980s uh, a group of artists, the Artist Equity Association, in league with uh, with uh, others, um, decided that they needed a standard so that everybody adheres to the same standard. And they came up with a standard under the auspices of the American Society of Testing and Materials. And um, the only thing that they did, however, because the, the cost of testing is quite expensive, so to make it palatable for for All these companies to do. Uh, They basically decided. They made the assumption: if we test a generic pigment in one type of oil with one type of white, it shouldn't matter. Okay. So what they did is they they uh, basically ground a generic pigment in in linseed oil and then tested it with a. It's actually a blend of titanium zinc white at the time. Just about four to five years ago, a couple of companies like Golden found anomalies. So they were kind of testing to replicate the original tests, and they found that the pigments no longer tested the same way. So the light fastness rating on the tubes of paint, most of them, and especially if you see light fastness ASTM, you know, uh, Roman numeral one or two, on a tube of paint, that's that test. Okay. So, so the manufacturer doesn't actually do the test. They rely on the original test done 40 years ago, or if it's a, it's a more recent pigment, maybe 10 years ago or, or whatever, whenever the pigment was introduced. So the pigment had one test and that was done. And then that means that everybody could put on that label. So if you buy ultramarine blue pigment, That means you can put on your label, you know, ASTM light fastness rating of Category 1, which means the highest light fastness rating because it's ultramarine blue. doesn't matter where you buy the ultramarine blue pigment because there's a number of manufacturers. You could still do that. Mm. We know that that's not correct anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
3: last year, the ASTM committee, which now there's only two companies meeting on that committee, And it happens to be Golden and Us. All the other ones used to be on the committee. It was
4: twenty companies. There was more more. than 20 companies ago. They're actually
3: still part of the committee. They're no longer meeting with the committee. So they pay their membership dues, but they're not meeting with the committee anymore. And so the problem now is is now we don't we don't know if we can rely on those ratings anymore. So um last year, Golden and us decided to retest a set of pigments under different conditions to see if these anomalies that Golden found uh, are actually true across the board for a group of pigments. And that's what we're doing this year. <clears throat> In addition to that, we purchased uh, outdoor exposure uh, racks. And equipment to allow us to do our own testing at home in our facility so that we can test things more rapidly because we're no longer relying on the ASTM test. Hmm. So, this how, is a very How long,
1: I'm long sorry? do you
3: have to test the color? So, basically, if we, if we test it, now the, the original test is actually good. The problem was the white that was used and, um, and the fact that they only tested He's one asking pigment. How long so, so what happens is uh, the test is a certain amount of radiation. So, and so the, the amount of radiation happens hap, has to be a certain amount. So it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of how much. I don't know if that makes sense. In terms of outdoor exposure, if you were to do this in Arizona, it generally takes one or two months outdoor oh. exposure. And what they what they believe in theory, and and this is still has to be borne out by actual science. But we believe it's it's you know there's a lot of you know a lot of scientists involved in this, and we believe that an outdoor test of this amount is equivalent to 100 years in a museum.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: Wow. So it's, it's what we call an accelerated test. Accelerated tests are not always perfect, but they are fairly reliable, especially if they're done in a, in a way that's, that eliminates any bias. And that's, that's what we're trying to do right now we found that there is a bias and it was caused by the white that's used. Um, And so, because what, how they test the color is they mix it with white until it's at a very pale shade. And they expose that because we know that when colors are mixed with white, they tend to fade faster than at full strength. Hmm. So, um, so it's, it's very interesting, but it's, it's, for us it's very urgent
4: and it's uh, yes and painful and i it's, mean it's not it's, for us i mean fortunately we have all uh inorganic pigments so we are we are lucky ones but in the whole world again we not worry about
3: yeah, the, the inorganic pigments are less liable to be affected by this than the organic pigments and unfortunately uh, organic pigments make up of most
4: now pigments
3: lines of other, other companies. For us, we only have three three organic pigments in our. When I hear
1: product. of um, light fastness, I always think of alizarin. Would you, would you paint with alizarin with it being notoriously unlight fast?
3: So yeah. alizarin has a light fastness category of two, which means that it will shift color um, during this exposure. Uh, but if you, if you paint it with full strength without diluting it with white, it will last. Mm. That's what that means. Okay. So, um, now, another way to do that is to use it in a glaze. So instead of mixing white into it, you get to the value of the underpainting that you're looking for, and then glaze a alizarin over it. Mm-hmm. That will actually also help preserve the color. And that's, by the way, a technique that the old masters started doing back in the 16th century.
1: I'm glad to hear that, that it it doesn't fade in more pure quantity. I didn't know white faded colors more, or however that works. That's interesting.
4: You teach that in glass.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: i yeah. all about that, yeah. Maybe it knows.
2: Is there any, I mean, I God, I, like, I just feel like there's so much more to say. I don't know, Marshall, maybe we should t- do, do a round two at some point. But is there any, just like a last word of advice to artists
3: out there? Whatever they do, keep it simple. That's yeah. what we, we tell artists all the time. If you can achieve the effect you're looking for in a simpler fashion, do that. And probably even more important than anything else that an artist can do, paint on rigid supports. <laughs> Stop using cam- stretch canvas. That yeah. is linked to the biggest problems artists have. That's the first thing out of the gate we teach. We spend actually full almost day. a full day on selecting supports. And, you know, we say, you know, and we, we joke about, we say, you know, if you took our class and you forgot everything we afterwards. The amnesia, amnesia you the amnesia after that. If so you remembered remember the one point, thing. the pain on rigid support, you've probably saved 95% of the problems you're going to have. Wow.
4: Yeah, and that point it doesn't matter much what paint you use because uh, that will definitely survive longer.
3: <laughs> yeah, you, so. that rigid support gives your painting I mean, it's so easy to see because if you compare paintings from the 17th century and we have them, panels and canvas they're a world of difference. World of difference. How do you feel about copper? Great. Copper's great. It's Copper is one of those things. It's either the worst possible support or the absolute best possible support. And the difference comes only in how it's cared for afterwards.
2: Um, So there's nothing you can do to paint. I I mean, I kind of paint straight on it. um, uh, Am I supposed to be oxidizing it or rubbing it with garlic or, you know,
3: not not necessary. Copper and oil paint love each other. It's, it's a it's a match, very good, but copper is, is a fickle uh, is a fickle support sometimes, and it and it really has to do. If you keep that painting, let's say in a in a relatively non humid condition, it'll last forever. Well, not forever, but it'll last a very very long time. <laughs> but if you if you throw it outside and expect it to, it's it's going to it's going to just crumble very quickly.
4: And with Corona, we waited for copper uh, almost three months. Now we're back to stock, so we have copper. We have so copper we, panels
3: now. Yeah. So, yeah,
4: we're happy now. <laughs> Corona but it's, it's, it, is, it
3: is a wonderful support, absolutely yeah. wonderful.
2: I, and, and, I, I didn't realize you guys carried it, so, I, so I you, might, you might be my new source. Yeah. Yes.
3: It's, uh, we carry, uh, it's, it's uh, copper composite. So it's a thin sheet of copper on, it's on a plastic Still, yeah. core and aluminum backing. It's, it's very durable. For Dina, for your work, because you do this kind of jewel-like small work, that's where copper excels.
2: For anyone who wants to buy your paint or take your workshops, uh, where, where,
3: where do people find you? The paintingbestpractices.com is where we're doing the webinars and we're building online courses there so paintingbestpractices.com
4: and the paint you can buy and of course naturalpigments.com and there you can find supports copper included and And uh, if you're in europe and if you're in
3: europe it's naturalpigments.eu yes and soon uh naturalpigments.ca in canada all right guys this is great all right well thanks very much
0: Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Grind podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind. And we play it on our next episode. The number is 929 267 Again, it's nine two nine two six seven four eight three zero. 4830 You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website any of you feel so inclined leave us a review on itunes that will really help us we love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you